Wow, thank you so much, Valerie. That was just a precious testimony of God's faithfulness, and we just uh, are so blessed to hear it. You know, testimonies are wonderful because they encourage our faith. If the Lord did it for them, he could do it for me. Amen? Amen. And uh, I'm feeling like, boy, I don't want to offend anyone because Sister Hyacinth, it's so good to see you back with us too. Wow. I'm just rejoicing in the Lord in his faithfulness and how he's protected our church family. God has been so good and so faithful. Well, we are continuing in our series on praying the word. Praying the word. And let us be reminded this morning that when we pray the word, we have at our disposal awesome power. Awesome privilege, but awesome power. Think about it. You are combining prayer with the word of God. You put those two together and you have something that is so incredibly dynamic. It's like what happens, and I don't understand nuclear fusion, but I understand that when two separate atoms are brought together, they then form a third atom, and that, you know, results in atomic explosive power. But the thing about combining prayer and the word is even greater than atomic power. Because the Bible tells us that by the word of God's mouth, the universe was created. Now, is that power? He spoke the universe into existence. And if you ever want to blow your mind, you need to study astronomy. Because you can't wrap your mind around what's up there in the heavens. The, the infinite massiveness of the universe. And God spoke it into existence. And the scripture says to you and to me that we have a double-edged sword in our mouth. Do you know what that double-edged sword is? It's the word of God. And when we take the word of God and pray it, I know we read it, but it's intended to be prayed. And it's only as we pray it that it becomes part and parcel of who we are. And it becomes powerful in our lives, causing us to live the kind of life that God has called us to live, empowering us to serve God, equipping us to do what God has called us to do. So I pray that as we have been in this series, that the Lord by his spirit would teach us how to wield this powerful weapon of praying the word of God. We were looking for several weeks at the prayer of the Apostle Paul. We're looking mainly at apostolic prayers and the prayers of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, we're inviting you to look at the second prayer of the Apostle Paul, which is in chapter 3. And actually, of all of the prayers of the Apostles, including that of Peter, I believe these two prayers in Ephesians from chapter 1, verses 17 
following and then in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, these are the best known, the most loved, and the most used prayers. So if you're wondering where you should start with praying apostolic prayers, turn to Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 17, or turn to Ephesians 3. These are prayers that we should have with us in our prayer closet that we pray frequently. This morning we're going to be talking about, or introducing at least, what it means to be filled with fullness. And if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, we know that that fullness is God. So let's read about it in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And may the Lord add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. I want us to see this morning that this second prayer actually complements the first that we studied in chapter 1. The first prayer dealt with praying for enlightenment. You recall that the Apostle Paul prayed that God would give a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of our heart, the next slide please, the eyes of our understanding, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we might know what three things, the hope of his calling, his inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of his power. And when the Apostle Paul prayed that the Ephesian Christians and you and I would know this, he's not talking about learning a creed. He's not talking about understanding a church doctrine. He is challenging us to come into that place where we experience personally, individually, and radically the truth of God's word, the hope of his calling to know his inheritance in the saints. God has an inheritance in you and in me. I know we have an inheritance in Christ, but he has an inheritance in us. Do you know it? Do you live like it? And then to know the exceeding greatness of his power. It's that great power that he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. Can you find power greater than the power to raise the dead? I mean, once you're dead, it's over, but not with God. How could the Son of God 
beheld in the grave. Death could not keep him there. And the power of God raised him from the dead. And you and I today have that assurance that when this life is over, we will be absent from the body, present with the Lord, but there is also a glorious resurrection day that is coming. And that body that is put into the grave is going to be raised that which is mortal will take on immortality. That which is corruptible will take on incorruption. And we will have a glorious body in which to praise and serve God through all eternity. So that was the prayer for enlightenment. Paul wanted the Ephesians to learn the truths of God's word that are to impact our lives on a daily basis as believers in the truth of God's word. But the second prayer is that we might be enabled. We not only need enlightenment, we need enablement. What good is something that we learn with our mind, but we cannot put it into practice? That's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not knowing doctrine, but not fleshing it out. And that's why in the book of Ephesians, in the first three chapters, we learn the truths and the doctrines of Christ. But in the last three chapters, it's like, okay, now that you know this as a foundation for your spiritual life, here's how to flesh it out. Here's how to live it. Here's how to demonstrate it on a practical basis in your life and in your living. So Paul is praying that we would experience the truth of all that God has ordained for us. And if we would be honest with ourselves, Christian friends, let's be honest with ourselves because being honest with ourselves is the first step toward freedom in our Christian life. When we know the truth, the truth sets us free. And we can't be in delusion and think, well, I go to church and I read my Bible and I do all these things that are Christian things to do. In reality, are we really laying hold of all that God has for us? And is it impacting us in such a way that we are living glorious, victorious Christian lives? Because that's what God has ordained for us. The truth is that so many of us are living far below the provision as well as our position that is ours in Christ. So if we're going to live effective Christian lives, what do we need? We need enlightenment and we also need enablement. So in this prayer that deals with how we are to be enabled to flesh out what God has called us to, Paul says there is an end goal in sight. And it is for this that he prays. And we find it in verse 19. And I'm only going to read it here because we're not really going to have time this week to talk about all that it means. But this end goal is this, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you hear that? God wants us to be filled with all of his fullness. I'd like to read that in the Amplified Bible 
because that helps us capture a little bit more of what it means. That you may be filled through all your being unto all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. You may have the richest measure of the divine presence. And listen, become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. That's God's goal for you and for me, that our lives would be filled and flooded with God himself. What an audacious prayer. Who can fathom the immensity of God to pray that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And Paul admits himself, this is something that cannot humanly be comprehended. In this body and in this lifetime, we will never ever be able to be filled with all the fullness of God. But that is not to say that in ever increasing ways, we can be come more and more filled with God in our lives. So whatever you do, don't write it off and say, that's impossible for me to ever be filled with all the fullness of God, so I'll just forget about it. Why did the Apostle Paul say, this is what you need to pray, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, how do we get filled with all the fullness of God? We want to unpack what that means, but let's begin in verse 14 where the prayer really begins so that we can understand some context for this prayer. Where the Apostle Paul says, for this reason, well, he's praying for this reason. What reason is he praying this prayer? You got to read what precedes that verse, and in fact, the whole context of what the Apostle Paul has been saying. He's speaking about this glorious mystery that has been hidden for, for ages, but now through Christ has been made manifest. You know in the Old Testament how we're told that God said, I want a people for myself, a, a nation unlike any of the other peoples on the face of the earth. Because after God created humanity, what did the heart of humanity do? They went far away from God. Thanks to our great-great-grandfather, Adam. Because we inherited that same sin nature. And it just became very natural for us to do things that were against God and at enmity against God. So God said, I want a people that I can call especially my own. I'm going to give them my word. They're going to obey my word. I'm going to be their God. They are going to be my people. So what did God do? He called Abraham. And through Abraham, he raised up the nation of Israel that would be his select people. But what did Israel really become? A type of really what was the mystery of God that was hidden. And that is that through Christ, not only Israel is special to God, but each and every one of us 
can become special to God, can become his sons and his daughters, can become his unique people. That's why Peter said, you're a chosen people, a select, unique nation that God has set apart for himself and for his holy purposes. So these Gentiles that the Jews always thought were outside of God's covenant, outside of God's provision, and I think that means you and me, unless any of you are Jewish here, but I'm so thankful that the Bible tells me that I've been grafted in and now I am the son of Abraham because of Jesus Christ. And now all the provision of God and all the covenant of God that he promised to his people now is mine through Jesus Christ. And what is God's plan that Paul is speaking about here? Why is he praying this prayer? That God has revealed this mystery, that he is taking the Jew, he's taking the Gentile, he's making them one new man. The church of Jesus Christ, one new man. Whether we're black, we're white, we're yellow, we're red, regardless of our socioeconomic status, we are all still on the same level playing ground before the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says, you are one in me. You are all equal in the sight of God. You are all equally loved, unconditionally loved. You are equally blessed. There's no one that could look down on another and say, I'm better than you because we're all bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and saved by his marvelous grace. Now, Paul explains this in Ephesians 2 when he talks about how God destroyed the enmity that existed and brought these two together, making one new man. Important verses, I want to read them in the Passion Translation. Our reconciling peace is Jesus. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. He has made Jew and non-Jew one in Christ. By dying as our sacrifice, he has broken down every wall, every barrier of prejudice that separated us and has now made us equal through our union with Christ. Ethnic hatred has been dissolved by the crucifixion of his precious body on the cross. The legal code that stood condemning every one of us has now been repealed by his command. His triune essence has made peace between us. How did he do it? By starting over, forming one new race of humanity, Jews and non-Jews fused together in himself. Verse 16, two have become one, and we live now restored to God, reconciled in the body of Christ. Through his crucifixion, hatred died. Oh, that the world could know the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the world could come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, all hatred and prejudice would die. And we as the people of God, by this Jesus said, will all men know you are my disciples as you have love one for another. And so the Apostle Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to get on what he sees as the sheer 
genius of God. Think about it. Ethnic enemies who absolutely hated each other. God says, when the Gentiles are confronted with my gospel, they're going to become grafted in. They're going to become one with Christ. And they're going to be united with those Jews who first believed. I know we live in a very polarized world. You think it's polarized now? In Jesus' day, the Jewish people could not even look at the Gentiles. They were considered dogs. They were considered the scum of the earth. And that enmity, to a great degree, still exists between the house of Ishmael and the house of Isaac. But I'll tell you something that thrills my heart like nothing else. And this week I was watching a YouTube video where there were Arabs and Jewish people under the same roof as one in Christ, rejoicing in Jesus their Messiah, praising and worshiping the God who made them one in Christ. Paul recognizes that by human perspective, how in the world is that possible? We look at our world today and we say it's impossible that there could ever be peace in the world today. Well, if Jesus comes into the lives and the hearts of people, there will be peace because he is the Prince of Peace. And Paul says, how will such an enormous task before him as he was commissioned? Here he was a Jew. God says, Paul, I don't want you preaching to the Jews. You need to take this glorious gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, that they too might know the love of God, that they too might understand the purposes of God. And so Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. How do you accomplish a task like this? It's only in partnership with God. And as he prays this prayer, he acknowledges something. He is praying before the Father. Now, God is our Father. We, we love talking about God as our Daddy, don't we? But he's, he's also the Father in the sense that he is the origin of everything that exists. Without God, there would be nothing. But he created it all. So Paul is signifying by saying, I bow my knees to the Father by saying, God, you're the great creator. You're the singular maker of all things. You're the father and the designer and the divisor, the mastermind, the engineer, the composer, and the completer of all that exists. And you are the head and the father of everything that is named both in heaven and on earth, for all living can trace their existence to you. Now, even earthly fathers and families exist. Why? Because God <laughs> created each and every one of us. And so Paul bows. He bows and he prays to his father. Not the universal father, but with the recognition he's my father and I have a personal relationship with him, and I could talk to him personally about what is on my heart. This is what distinguishes the creation. People could say, I talk to God. But Jesus said, there's only one way to God, and that is through 
Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way in John 14, 6, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And there are people in the world who want to own God as their father, but I want to say to you this morning, there is only one way. God doesn't have grandchildren. And just because your mom or dad or grandparent was a godly person who walked with God, who knew God, doesn't mean that you've been grandfathered in. No, 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 no. Each and every one of us have been born in sin. Each and every one of us are confronted with the claim of Jesus Christ upon our life. And until we come before the cross and acknowledge that we are sinners and acknowledge that we need God's grace, we need his forgiveness, and place our faith in Jesus Christ, not in a religion, not in a creed, but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who took your sin and nailed it to the cross, who became your punishment for the sin that you and I committed. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. Well, what do we do with that reality? Are we saying, Jesus, I give you my life. I believe in you. I believe that you came, that you lived, that you died on the cross, that you rose again, that you ascended into heaven, and that one day you are coming back for a people who belong to you. And then I want to live until that day, every day of my life, with every breath that I take for your honor and for your glory. And until you do that, you can't pray like the Apostle Paul prayed when he said, I bow my knees to the Father. Yes, the universal Father, the creator of all that is, but in my heart, he's my Abba. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray. When you pray, say, our Father, that word is Abba, it's Daddy. We have a relationship. This God, who is so infinitely, unbelievably, incomprehensible in who he is, in all of his attributes, he is our Father, and he desires to have a personal relationship with each and every one of us. And so Paul bows in prayer for this great plan of God to be accomplished. And he says, my response is to get down on my knees. <laughs> when I read that, it really gave me great pause. Because I feel like, now please understand what I'm saying and don't jump to conclusions. Because I'm not saying you need to kneel when you pray. But what I am saying is we are living in a day and an age where people are so flippant, flippant about the things of God. We're so irreverent when it comes to our understanding of who God is, what, how there should be a certain decorum that we observe when we come into his presence because he's a holy God. And we're not holy like he is holy. We need to acknowledge the importance of bending our knee and acknowledging that God is holy. And bowing and bending our knees because prayer is such 
or God ordained it to be such an integral part of our Christian experience. And we go through life so often, our days are too busy, that we don't take time to communicate with God. How would it be in our personal relationships with those that we're closest to if we never had any dialogue, if we never had any communication? Those relationships would eventually just die. <laughs> you know, friends come and go, don't they? And the friendships are strong when the communication is strong. But let the communication die down and the relationship kind of peters out, doesn't it? The same thing is happening in our Christian lives when we, we fail to understand that God has called us into a place of prayer so that we can commune with him, not to go through a religious exercise. It's not to pray to go through a ritual. It's to pray because God says, I want to know you and I want you to know me. And as you open up your heart to me, I'm going to reveal my heart to you. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you how deep my love is for you. Getting down on our knees and praying. There's something actually to be said of that. Now I know that sometimes we have physical limitations or the place where we're praying doesn't lend itself to getting down on our knees, but if we're able to, during those, those times that we have set apart to go into our secret closet and to pray, I believe there's something very special about kneeling in prayer. You know, in the Old Testament, that was not a requisite. And yet we see in the scriptures, Solomon knelt at the dedication of the temple. Daniel knelt three times a day to pray. The psalmist declared that he'll kneel before the Lord his maker. Jesus, the Son of God, knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane in submission to his Father. Stephen, while he's being stoned, he kneels and asks the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Apostle Paul was a man who lived on his knees. When he said farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 21, the Scripture says he knelt on the shore. And here we read in this passage that he is kneeling before the Father, praying. And where's Paul praying? Do we, do we remember that he's imprisoned? He's under house arrest. He's waiting for the emperor to determine his fate. But he's still praying. He's maintaining communion and fellowship and relationship with God. And isn't that what the scripture challenges us to, to pray at all times and in every situation and to pray with reverence, to pray with bended knee. If we can't bend our knee, it certainly refers to the posture of our hearts that we come before God in humility. We come before God in contrition. We come before God with a surrendered heart. We come before God with a total dependency. You're, you're my daddy. I don't have what I need, but you have what I need. 
I depend on you. And do you know that there's nothing more that delights the heart of God than to see his children are totally dependent on him? I love what Sister Valerie said. Her trust and her confidence was in a daddy that she knew loved her and cared for her. And that regardless of what was happening in her life, he was faithful to be with her, to see her through, to prove his faithfulness and his love and his goodness and his mercy. He's the source of all that we need. And he delights when we bend our knee and the posture of our heart is, God, I come before you humbly. I come before you with a contrite heart. I need you. I can't do it on my own. I can't accomplish what you've called me to do. But as I come and pray, you will be faithful to meet my need. So before we close, I just briefly want to look at the first part of what Paul is praying here. There's this progression in this prayer. You will notice in this passage, there's a repetition of this word that, if you're looking in your Bible at these verses, Paul uses that word that as a connecting word. It's, it's like a conjunction that helps us identify the objectives of this prayer. We've already stated the end Result and the goal that Paul is praying for is what? That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. But how do we get there? We get there, and he outlines it for us here, that God would, first of all, strengthen us, in verse 16, in our inner being. To what end do we need to be strengthened? So that Christ may dwell in our hearts. To what end do we need Christ dwelling in our hearts so that we can become rooted and grounded in love? To what end do we need to have this strong foundation in love so that we could really know, not with our mind, but know and experience the love of Christ and in coming to know the love of Christ? To what end? To become filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, those verses, my friends, is such a treasure, trove of truth, a treasure that we need to unpack, that we need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, that we need to pray, that we need to make part of our lives because we will never arrive at becoming more and more filled with God. That's what the Christian life is. It's not going to church. Going to church is a means to help us get more of God. But some people see going to church as an end in itself. Oh, I went to church today, so I did my Christian duty. Oh, I put something in the offering, so I did my Christian duty. No, 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 no. God wants you to get filled with more and more of himself. You know why? Because he wants you to look more and more like his son, Jesus. Because it's only as we look more and more like his son, Jesus, that the world will see and know that there is an answer to their problem, that there's an answer to that ache in their heart, that there's an answer to that abyss that never becomes satisfied, and it's having the love of Jesus. So I just want to begin with one little thought here. He's asking the Father of glory to give the Ephesian Christians... Here it is, according to the riches of his glory. 
And we're not even going to deal with what he's asking. But he's asking God to do what he's asking him to do according to the riches of his glory. Notice he did not say out of the riches of his glory. Now let me attempt to illustrate this for you this morning. I think we're all familiar with the name Jeff Bezos. Everybody know Jeff Bezos? If you don't know, there he is, the richest man in the world. Look at his worth, $192 billion. Now, if you forget what the value of billion is, billion is 100,000 million. If you think a million dollars is a lot, multiply that by 100,000 million, and then you arrive at a billion. That's just at one billion. This man is worth 192 billion. Here's, here's a bit of trivia for you this morning. With that kind of obscene wealth, did you know that Jeff Bezos can spend $11 million every day for the rest of his life until he is 107 years old? That's for 50 years. He can spend $11 million a day. But here's the point. According to the riches of his glory, if Jeff Bezos were to hand you a $100 bill out of his riches, would that not be very different than him handing you a million dollars, which would be according to his riches? Because if he, if he gives you a $100 bill out of his riches, that's like him giving you a penny. But if he gives you a million dollars, that's according to his riches. I know it's still chump change because he's such an extraordinary billionaire, but it's still according to his riches. It, it has some value. I mean, a million dollars has a billion. How many of us would like a million dollars, huh? Regardless of how much that multi-billionaire has, if he gives me a billion dollars, then I say, well, he's given me something. And Paul is saying... God, give according to your riches in glory. So if Jeff Bezos is as rich as he is, it begs the question, how rich is God? How big is your God this morning? Jeff Bezos may be the richest man in the world, but guess what? He just has a very small portion of the world's wealth. I mean, there are other billionaires in the world. This world, there are trillions and trillions of dollars in this world. And Bezos only has billions. But that makes us consider the one who owns not only planet Earth, but the universe. Talk about real estate. <laughs> I remember uh, a man in the first church that I pastored always said, Pastor, the most valuable investment on earth is a piece of the earth. Well, how rich is God? He owns it all. Not only the earth, but the universe. His wealth is unfathomable. And 
Let's, let's make sure we understand. It goes far beyond monetary wealth and gold and silver and precious stones. Because when you know God as your Abba, you know him as rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in goodness, rich in forbearance, rich in long-suffering, rich in glory, rich in wisdom, rich in knowledge. We can have all the money in the world, and if we don't have that which we've just declared, which characterizes the richness of God, then we are walking around as paupers. If you don't have the wisdom of God in your life, you're a poor person. But God desires to richly lavish you and I as his children with all that he has at his disposal, with all that he purchased for us when his son was nailed to the cross. How many times in our lives have we thought or even said, if only I had. God has whatever you need. And whatever you need, ask God, God, do I, do I really need this? Maybe God's going to say, you don't need that. This is what you need. And this is so much greater. This is so much more important. This is going to bring so much more blessing. This is going to be so, many, so much greater a dividend. Are we willing to trust our Abba to give us Every good and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. He knows us. He loves us. He has a plan for us. And he desires to bless us by giving us the desires of our hearts as we delight in him. Let's always remember that this God with whom we have to do gives according to the riches of his glory. I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us the immensity of all that that means and how it is to impact our lives. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. As we close the service this morning and as we think about the end goal that the Apostle Paul is praying for here, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God by coming to know the love of God. I want us to either, if you don't know it, you don't need to sing it, but listen to the words concerning God's love, how deep it is, how immeasurable it is, and how God wants you and I to enter into the experience of it. So, media, if you're ready, can you please play that song as we prayerfully meditate 